Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part two of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Session two, the revealed. Oh, now this is what it's all about. Wouldn't it stink if all we had was the concealed? And yet we have the revealed. And yet even in the revealed, we see as through a glass dimly. In other words, it doesn't even come close to what revelation we will see even in the future. However, we can see clearly in being able to behold our Messiah and know his purpose and understand how that relates to us and understand how all of that from the old comes to us in the new and we find ourselves as Ruth entering into that place of new birth, that place of birth known as Bethlehem, at that barley harvest on the day of Passover, and entering into the lineage of Boaz. I mean, it truly is remarkable. So session two, the revealed. So in the first one, we said the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so to give you a greater understanding of really what this is talking about is the Christ is in the old concealed. We don't know who he is. We don't know exactly when he will come. We know all sorts of details, but we can't fully grasp it. The Christ is in the new revealed. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. So what we have is you have been told ahead of time. There is something that was laid down Thousands of years ago, three th- what is it, close to 3,000 years ago, the Bible was first begun to be written. Now, creation was close to 6,000 years, but the Bible didn't start until right around 1300 B.C. I know it sounds strange, but I, all the history is Moses, that's when he lived, and he's the one that wrote the first five books. And so all of this, from Moses through the prophets, all the way through Malachi, are testifying of something. He's coming. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He'll be born of a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Very specific details of this one to come who will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And we are told before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, we would believe. So the question is, when you see it come to pass, will you believe? Will you turn unto your Messiah and say, he is, he is. Ten strange foreshadows. So here's our, here's our foreshadows. The month of Nisan, Yob from Uts, the ark, the temple veil, the paschal lamb, the Josiah-esque morning, the selling for silver, the strange and particular form of death, the curse of the tree in that day or one singular day. So the fulfillment, number one, not the foreshadow, but the fulfillment, number one, the month of Nisan. It was the time of a new creation. Earth is created, and then when Noah's exiting the ark onto dry land, 
the earth is recreated. What happens in the month of Nisan 2,000 years ago when Jesus comes? You know that Jesus is actually the creator of the heavens and the earth? And so what we see is that the creator of the heavens and the earth is bringing about a new creation. It's a new creation, not in this earth, in the red of this earth, but in the red of his blood. It's a new creation in his blood. Jesus makes all things new. He made a new creation. It was the time of a new birth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all were born and died in the first month. Well, it's the time of death and the new birth of the patriarch of patriarchs. I mean, what you see is the death of our great patriarch of patriarch. Everything that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are leading to is the Christ. And that Christ dies and then rises again. It was the time of final sacrifice. Isaac is bound, ram is provided, it's a Passover, paschal lamb is offered, but then what happens? 2,000 years ago, we have what's known as the final sacrifice. Jesus, the Passover lamb. Behold, says John the Baptist, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb dying on what day? The 14th of Nisan. You see, though the enemy conspired to destroy the Son of God, Though Satan entered Judas, though the priests, the teachers of the law conspired, hired thugs, paid Judas to try and trap the Messiah, all of their doings were fulfilled and all of their machinations and evil and hate were fulfilled on a single day known as Nisan 14. Oops. Did they not know what they were doing? They didn't. It says if they had known, they wouldn't have done it. That's extraordinary. It was the time of divine intercession. The ram caught in the thicket, and as a result, Isaac is spared, and the ram is sacrificed instead. It's the paschal lamb intervening at Passover. Instead of the firstborn dying of the Jews, instead the lamb is killed instead, and it's set upon the house the doorpost, and as a result, when death passes over, it passes over. Esther interceding on behalf of the Jewish nation, risking her life, standing in place of an entire nation. Well, and what happens 2,000 years ago, but Jesus gave up his life that we might live. He was the intervening ram caught in the thicket. It was the time of freedom from the shackles of sin and death. Egyptian slavery is annulled in Nisan. Haman's plot exposed and foiled in Nisan. And listen to this. It's freedom from the law of sin and death, justification from the looming penalty. It was the time of judgment upon the firstborn, the flesh. The death death angel in Egypt strikes down the firstborn. Haman is hung. Saul dies in battle. And the old man is crucified. Your first man? You see, you have to be born again born anew. You have to be a new creature. But what about your old creature, which is controlling your body? You can't get away from it. However, when you believe in Christ, that death nullifies the power, crucifies that first life so that you now can be born anew, so that you can be set free into a new covenant in his blood. It was the time of first fruits, the harvest, The barley harvest, the food for animals. Well, Jesus is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. He is the food of God laid in a Jewish feeding trough. It was a time of unprecedented purity. 
The lamb without blemish or spot. No leaven allowed for seven days. You know that Jesus is the unleavened, unblemished, unspotted, paschal lamb. In him was no sin. In his mouth was found no guile. It was the time of the lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Passover. It's a sacrifice, his food and his shelter. Jesus, the lamb of God. A sacrifice for sin. God become food. What does Jesus say in John 6? Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no part with me. And they're like, wow, what's he talking about? And he says, and if you happen to be thinking, I'm talking uh, symbolically, I'm telling you, my body is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. Huh? God become food, and God become the clothing of righteousness for the dead in sin. He is the lamb. It was the time of the Gentiles being grafted in. Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem at the inception of the barley harvest. Well, now what happens? The door to the Gentiles is opened up through the great cross work of Jesus. It was the time of a raised up tabernacle. Remember Jesus? Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they mocked and scoffed and said, it took 46 years to build this thing. And you're going to do it in three days, huh? He says, but the temple of which he spoke was his body. It's the time of a raised up tabernacle. Oh, that's amazing. The temple of God is rebuilt in three days. The resurrection of the perfect tabernacle, Jesus Christ. It was the time of the coronation of the king of all kings. In the Old Testament, David is anointed king over Judah, king over the Jews. David is anointed as king of the Jews in Nisan. Well, how about Jesus? Jesus is exalted to the highest place, given the name above all names, and crowned as king of all kings. It was the time when heaven went to war, and it came to pass after the year was expired, the time when kings go forth to battle. There's a foreshadow in the Old Testament. When the year is expired, then the kings go forth to battle. Who strode onto the scene of time and after the year was concluded, steps out single-handedly. An army of one against all the powers of sin and death and the devil. One man, helpless, hanging there, pierced. One man in absolute weakness crushes all the powers of sin and death. Whoa! Our king has gone forth to battle. The time when the king of kings went forth to battle, he went to war all by his lonesome. Fulfillment number two, Job from Utz. That's just fun to say. I know some of you are jealous and you wish you had the microphone to say it too. (laughs) Job means the hated and despised. Well, how about Jesus as far as the fulfillment of this? Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. He was a worm and no man. Utz, the place of wood, and they crucified him. They stuck him to the place of wood. That's amazing. You look back to Job. Job is such an intriguing book, because most of us want to avoid it like the plague. And we're afraid that God's going to bring up, our, bring up our name in conversation with the devil. Have you considered my servant Eric? And we're like, oh, no, 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 don't even do We have a man who's completely protected. He has a hedge about him is what uh, Satan actually says. I can't touch him. You have a hedge about him. And he is given, because the enemy boasts. And he makes his accusation against God. And he says, the reason they serve you is because you protect them and you give them all this stuff. But if that was removed, they would curse you. So Job is literally 
a picture. It's a test point before all the onlooking heavenlies of why men serve God. Everything is stripped from Job. He loses everything. And he is brought low, and even his wife says, curse God and die. And what does he do? In the key moments, you could just sort of see if there's a background score behind this. In the key moments, it all goes silent. And instead of cursing God, he falls to his face and worships God. And all heaven cheers, and all hell stands back in awe. You see, Jesus Christ bent Totally given. He is majesty on high. Come, and he's treated like he's a worm and no man, yet he doesn't curse. He doesn't destroy. He doesn't call forth the legions of angels, but silent as a lamb, he worships. And all hell is silenced. Its head is crushed. Its argument null and void against man. Fulfillment number three, the ark. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way the truth and the life. Get inside. Get inside. I've built a passenger vehicle for you. The judgment is coming, but I've made a way, and the door is open. Jesus is the ark. He's the door. He's the way to the Father. He is the way. The judgment is coming, and all that are in their first dwelling place, it will fail in the time of judgment, and that wrath will kindle upon Adam. But if any Adam of this earth turns from his wickedness and comes unto the one of true righteousness, the door is open and they can climb in. And when the door shuts at the judgment day, they will be safe. Fulfillment number four, the temple veil. So remember, it's 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. 300 priests to carry it. Two teams of oxen couldn't even rend this in two. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Uh, Even reading more of that story is is fun because dead people come to life. I mean, it's great stuff. However, what I want you to see here is the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now what we have is a veil. On its outside are cherubim, and they block the way, the way into the presence. It is a blue, scarlet, and purple veil. Blue symbolic of heaven. Heaven come to earth covered in blood. Think about what colors Jesus is at that exact moment. He is the divinity of heaven, He is God himself come to this earth and he is covered in blood and bruise. He is purple and scarlet and that veil is pierced. It is rent. And as a result, a way is made into the presence of God. Not just that, but the presence of God now has a way into this world to live and dwell inside of us as the mobile holy of holies. The veil is rent. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The writer of Hebrews is saying that veil is his body. Don't you see it? That veil is his body. And it was torn. It was rent. So that you could enter into the heart of God. There is a gap. 
It is a piercing of his side. And when you humble yourself, you can enter in through that wound, that suffering. And when you do and you believe, you will find yourself in the very heart of God. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Fulfillment number five, the paschal lamb. Lambs are used for sacrifice, clothing, and food. Paschal lamb is set apart for the day. It's inspected for its perfection, proven to be without spot or deformity. This is just the way that the paschal lamb process works. It is set apart, and so Jesus, even on the day, is entering the city with palm branches being waved. And the lamb is being set apart. And there's a recognition that this is indeed the lamb. You know that Jesus was even inspected? I know that sounds very strange. But you know that Pilate looks over Jesus and then comes out before all the Jews and, say, and says, I see no fault in him. Wow! I mean, that's just extraordinary! And then sacrificed without the breaking of a single bone on Passover day. The blood used is a house covering. We are to become houses covered in blood. It's called the robe of righteousness, the garment of salvation is to cover us. And when we believe in Christ, we are literally in that clothing. In Ephesians, it's called the armor of God, but in Isaiah 61, it's called the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness. It's red. Paschal lamb eaten on the Passover day. Fulfillment number six, the Josiah-esque morning. I don't know that anything is needed to say for this other than that's exactly what happened. The mourning and the woe over those that loved this man and knew his purity. They knew the travesty of this moment. Such was the morning, and it was greater than even the days of Josiah. Fulfillment number seven, the selling for silver. And said unto them, this is in the New Testament. It's like a direct quote from the book of Zechariah. What will you give me, and I will deliver him into you, unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Now what it says in Zechariah is that this money is thrown down at the floor of the temple and that it is used to buy a potter's field. It says that in Zechariah. Well, guess what? Judas repents of what he's done. He's feeling horrible about it. He's betrayed innocent blood, so he comes in to the temple, to the priest, and throws it down onto the temple floor. And the priests say, hey, get out of here. They have no idea what to do with this because it's, it's blood money. They can't put it in the treasury. So what do they do with it? They buy the potter's field. His enemies fulfill his messiahship. They prove that he is the I am. Fulfillment number eight, the strange and very particular form of death. Before, long before Roman crucifixion even came into existence, we have an intimate and vivid description of Roman crucifixion in the Old Testament. A man of the blood lineage of David, who is considered king in the Davidic line, first of all, of the lineage of Mary. David has multiple sons, but two of his sons are Nathan and Solomon. Solomon is the king after David. The Messiah must come of the blood lineage of David, but he must be king in David's stead. How in the world is this going to happen, especially since he also needs to be of the order of Melchizedek? And by the way, you can't be 
a priest and a king in Israel because the priest comes from Levi and the kings come from Judah. Well, you, you can't, can't do this then. And he must be born of a virgin, which means if he's born of a virgin, there's no paternal input, fatherly input into his biological growth and development. How can you be of the lineage of kings if you don't have a father? Well, did you know that every single detail of his messiahship is filled to the letter, to the jot and tittle? He is, in fact, of the order of Melchizedek, which is a heavenly priesthood, for his father is, in fact, God. And he's of the blood lineage of David, in and through the son Nathan, down through Mary. And he is of the kingly line of Judah, of David, of Solomon, in and through his adoptive father, which in Judah, in, in Israel, is legally binding that the firstborn, even if adopted, is bequeathed the kingly title. He is the first son of Joseph. Therefore, as odd as it is that Joseph was in the lineage of kings, they didn't have functional kings at that time in Judah. Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. He is, in fact, the king of the Jews. He must be. And he must be born in Bethlehem. 33 years ago, everyone might be saying, this guy was from Nazareth. He's not from Bethlehem. What happened 33 years ago, oh, teachers of the law? Do you remember? Do you remember a census being called by Caesar Augustus? Yes, what about it? 33 years ago. Who's his father? Who's his mother? What lineage are they from? They're from David. What city would they have had to go to? No. No. No! Yes, yes, yes. One betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Count them. 30 pieces. He must be as a lamb slain. And in Jerusalem, he must die a very specific sort of death. In Jerusalem. He must be in a very specific spot on planet Earth. And he himself must be silent as a lamb unto his slaughter. In his death, he must bear the sin of many. He must remove the iniquity of the land in that one day. He must keep all his bones. The death of Jesus Christ is very specific. And the gospel writers are writing it to let you know he has done it. As it was written, he is the fulfillment. He told you beforehand so that now that he's done it, you would believe that he is the I am. Don't you realize he is God with us? He is Jehovah come to this earth in human skin. He is, in fact, the son of God. So he can't have any bones severed from him. Just think about the cross. The death is very specific, and he didn't lose a limb. It was a terrible travesty and a terrible torture but no limbs were removed. No bones were lost. He must not have any of his bones broken. I don't know how many of you know the story, but in Roman crucifixion, breaking of the legs is actually very common because usually you tie them and maybe you pierce them with nails. However, at a certain point, if there's a need to progress the, the suffering and get it to you know, get over with and get this guy dead, then you break their legs and that causes them suffocation because they can't push up and breathe. And so it quickens and hastens the death. And so at a certain point, they were going to break the legs of all three of the criminals. And they broke one, two, and then they came to Jesus. And the Roman guard or soldier, who has no idea about all of this, stops. And he realizes that Jesus is already dead. You know that if he breaks Jesus' legs, he's not the Messiah? He's not the Messiah. 
But the Roman soldier stops, sees that he's dead, so to verify his death, pierces his side. Jesus must be pierced as Josiah was pierced. Pierces his side and what comes out? A river, a fountain. Blood, water. Blood to the Hebrew is life. Life water comes out. It's known as the river of life. It's known as living water. It's known as a fiery stream, a red stream of water. He must not have any of his bones broken. His accusers must yell out. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Read the gospel accounts and laugh because that's exactly what they say. They're mocking him, but they're actually proving his messiahship. Thank you. That's what I was needing you to say. (laughs) He must be pierced, likely as Josiah was pierced through with an arrow. And he was. He was pierced by a Roman soldier. His hands and feet must be pierced, not tied. They must be pierced. Very specific form of death. He must die a certain way. If he doesn't, he is not the Messiah. His death must be public for he will be surrounded, mocked, and reproached, and the crowd must look on him whom they pierced. He must be numbered with the criminals. One, two, three. He must be thirsty. He was. His every bone must be felt. One of the amazing things about how crucifixion works is it basically sets every bone out of joint as you hang there. So you feel every bone. And that's exactly what must be the case. Only crucifixion fulfills this. And yet, what did the Jews yell out? Crucify him! Prove him our Messiah. His every bone must be felt. His heart must be as wax. One of the statements from a medical uh, physician would say that when the soldier pierced his side, since outflowed blood and water, it was such a shocking thing that what likely took place is that he died or his heart imploded, that it literally melted within him. The weight and the anxiety and the pressure upon it literally burst his heart. And as a result, that is proven by what flows out of his side. It's an amazing thought because his heart must be as wax. A fountain, a river must be opened up. It's promised in that day, a river will be opened up out of David. What? A river is opened up. It is a river that will forever flow. The source of that river, the headwaters of that river is the very throne of grace. That river all throughout the Old Testament shows that it comes out of the throne. It's the very place that Jesus sits. It's the very center of his being. Fulfillment number nine, the curse of the tree. What does it say in Galatians? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Fulfillment number 10, in that day, one singular day. This wasn't over a period of time. This was one day in which this happened. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. That very day, he's buried. In other words, in that day, this will happen. And sure enough, 
This wasn't just a prison sentence of three years. This was one day in which all history changes. Everything is altered. The sin of that land is removed in one day. Isaiah 53, 750 years before Jesus. Now, I I want that to sink in. 750 years before Jesus, this is written. Most of us have no idea how the Bible is put together, and as a result, we oftentimes go with Da Vinci Code type of mentalities. It's like, oh yeah, some big hoax, some big conspiracy. This book has been put together in front of a public audience its entire existence, and all history that is honest would testify this book is supernatural. There's no other way of explaining it. This book has been put together in such a way that is shocking. I have a message called the 10 Simple Proofs, which goes through 10 points that even a child could understand and say, surely that is the word of God. It is, in fact, the word of God. This is the revelation given by God to men. Those men were carried along by the spirit of God to reveal a record, a testimony. And this testimony even indicts the very people that are writing it. Who in their right mind, if they're going to try and cobble together a conspiracy, are going to indict themselves in it? This book is extraordinary. Written over thousands of years by over 40 authors, and yet it's in perfect harmony. Every prophecy fulfilled. It is impossible. And yet with God, all things are possible. 750 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah writes, Whom has believed our report? Now, I put this in bullet points just so we could see it clearly. For who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. There is no beauty to him. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Now, 750 years before, it says that he will have stripes. You ever heard of scourging? Literally, stripes across the back. The flesh ripped away. By his stripes we are healed, and all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, literally craves his body and buries it in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, obviously we have quite a picture. And every single one of us as Christians knows what that's talking about. It's not lost on us. That is a vivid portrayal, an entire chapter of the Bible that in such intimate detail is showing the work of the cross. And it is in perfect agreement with the new covenant. Perfect! Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years. David picks up the pen and writes something. What he writes is so shocking. It is such an incredible portrayal. We'll call it a Christophany. It's a picture of Christ before the Christ. David, as he's writing, seems to transform from writing about his own life to writing about something beyond him, his descendant. Who is this? It's the Messiah. We all know it. But when will he come? What will he look like? Well, he'll, this will be him. Because it wasn't David. This isn't a description of David. Who is the description of? It's the Messiah, the Christ. A thousand years before, Jesus on the cross says this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To us, we hear a woeful cry because we don't know the Hebrew and we don't understand what a Hebrew would understand at the cross. If you're a Jew and you're looking up at Jesus and he says that, the first thought that goes through your head is Psalm 22. It's the first line of Psalm 22. Jesus, in front of his nation, cries out with a loud voice, Psalm 22! So what goes through a Jew's mind? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Listen closely. This is one of the most extraordinary things. A thousand years before the event. They pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus in front of the nation says Psalm 22. And before a nation with even king of the Jews written above his head, even though the Jews weren't too happy about it. We have a declaration. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And, they cast, and for my clothing they cast lots. What's happening simultaneously to this? 
That, that's happening. Even, even as Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And every Jewish mind is rehearsing Psalm 22. I tell you before it come to pass. Now I tell you before it come that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. I took out the he, because let's just get down to brass tacks and business. Do you know that he is? You know what it says in Hebrews? Anyone who's going to come to God must first believe that he is. You must know that he is the I am, which means he's unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever has come, and he has donned the human garment, and he has lived the life of a man that we couldn't live, and he suffered the penalty that the man deserved, but he bore that iniquity for us all, that anyone who would turn from their wickedness, from their Adamic sin, and give themselves unto his righteousness and trust it, look upon that tree with the brazen serpent, the one who became sin for us, we will find life. It's a promise. And the one who cannot lie has said it. The one who spoke all of those prophecies and could not lie has fulfilled them. He has done it in the same way he has perfectly fulfilled all his promise and all his prophecy in the past. He will perfectly fulfill it to you today. That's why this bewildering death is so amazing. It's ours. We share in it. He does the work, but we are invited in to participate in its grand accomplishment. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. He's told us beforehand. Do you know that the word of God is Jesus? The whole Old Testament is called the word of God. Jesus, and then he's the word of God in human flesh. The word of God becomes flesh. He told us beforehand. He told us. The word of God spoke it to us. Now he has come and he has fulfilled it. Our job is simple. It's called the work of believing. Uh, the Father's business, you know what it is? To believe on the one he sent. That's our job. So let's do our job. Let's be believers. I believe he is. Hear him. Moses describes a prophet that will come likened unto him. And he says, hear his words. When he comes, hear his words. That's the very beginning of the Old Testament. Hear him when he comes. The entire 39 books of the Old Testament speak of one thing. With one voice, they say, hear him. Jesus, carpenter from Nazareth. There's nothing about him that might even look like the leading man material. John the Baptist even likely may not have even noticed that his own cousin was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world until that day. And then suddenly, he sees it. He's like, whoa. This one who comes after me is before me. I am unworthy to even untie his shoe latchet. This is he. Though he looks like an everyday man, he is anything but. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he gleams a brilliant white, and he's transfigured in all his glory. Three witnesses of the apostles see it. Peter, James, and John, they all behold it. 
They behold something, and it is startling. But there's also three witnesses that show up on the scene to testify. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, symbolic of the word of God. And then Jehovah comes down in a cloud. And what does Jehovah say in the witness of the three apostles? Brace yourselves. Hear him! Hear him! The word of God has spoken. There's a big exclamation mark. And maybe we should put, oh, I don't know, a billion exclamation marks after it. And what is the statement to our soul from God himself to us? Hear him. Believe. He is the I am. He has come and he has done it. When you turn, you enter into that ark, that place of wood. When you come unto that tree and you behold it, you look upon it, you acknowledge, I am snake bit. I have been bit by the serpent. I have fallen for his treachery. And I am at enmity with you, God. But he has raised himself up and become sin for us. And the penalty and the wrath have been absorbed, have been pacified, satiated. He has borne the wrath. He has become accursed for us. And yet as we enter in, we enter into a dwelling that has already absorbed that wrath. There is no more wrath that can fall upon that dwelling known as Jesus Christ. He lives, and he lives in perfect righteousness. And we now enter into that, and we are able to boldly enter the throne room of grace to seek grace for help in time of need. We have access unto the very presence of God. The veil is rent. The cherubim stand to the side, and they let us pass. The flaming swords have dropped, and now we have access in And God's saying, now will you allow my living river to enter you so that I can bring it out to this world? And Jesus says, he that believes on me, out of his innermost will flow rivers of living water. For we are the carrying devices of that which is in behind the veil. That which men have been cut off from since Adam and Eve failed. We are now the holy of holy dwelling places of God. And he comes and sits on this mercy seat within our lives. And underneath our, that throne in our life bubbles forth a fountain. A fountain of life water, blood water. And when we live this life, we give that living water to anyone we come in contact with. We have seen the Lord. He has changed us. We are believers. Uh, why, why would we be anything else? We're believers. He said it. He did it. We believe. Thank you so much for listening to part two of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.